I'm Mariah M. and this is the Black Future Manifesto. Welcome everyone. Here on the Black Future Podcast, we want to figure out how to achieve Black liberation as a people. I know that sounds like a lofty undertaking because it is, but we're going to reflect on our past and examine our present in order to ensure that we can create an equitable future for all Black people. But we're not building this from scratch. Like On this show, we want to talk to the people who are already doing that work and also figure out what's being done now. I'm super excited for the guest for this particular episode. We have Rhonda Taylor Bullock. She is a fellow graduate and survivor of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Hashtag Sam has been silenced. She is a founder of We Are, an organization working to integrate anti-racist education within schools. She runs workshops for teachers, students, as well as parents. White parents literally pay her and her team to gather white children and try to reverse implicit racist biases that they have developed over time. Just real quick before, you know, I get chewed out. Implicit biases, as in what happens to us over time and we unconsciously absorb, but still affect how we move about in the world. We're also going to delve into what is whiteness and what exactly is its impact on us as children, as black people on a society at large. Without any further ado, here's Mike and I's conversation with Rhonda Taylor Bullock. We have Miss Rhonda Taylor Bullock in the studio. Yay! How are you doing, Rhonda? I'm doing well. Today's been a good day. Tell us about you. Well, I am a mother scholar. I have a seven-year-old son named Zion and a four-year-old daughter named Zaire. I currently run a nonprofit organization, which I co-founded with my partner, Kelvin. It is called We Are, and We Are stands for Working to Extend Anti-Racist Education. And we provide anti-racism training for children, parents, and educators. And we use a three-pronged approach to do that by offering summer camps for kids and rise in first through fifth grade, professional development for teachers and workshops for parents. And before I started doing that, I just wrapped up my dissertation defense um, and PhD program. So I just gradu- I haven't graduated yet. I just did the defense. <laughs> right, but you're still yeah. Dr. Rhonda Bullock. still, yeah. right. <laughs> the few more uh, hurdles I across before I can go across that stage. Um, and before I was in a PhD program, I taught English at Hillside High School for almost 10 years. I'm from a small rural town called Golston, North Carolina, okay. and Durham feels really big to me. Mm. <laughs> so growing up in Golston, I mean, how did you come to an awareness about racism and white supremacy and those sorts of things growing up? Wow, so many teachable moments in my childhood. <laughs> um, so growing up in rural, rural Chatham County, and um, race became real to me at a very early age. I was five years old. I was in kindergarten, so a little bitty baby. And I remember the first time that I was made aware of race or my skin color was when I was in kindergarten and we were sitting at a round table and I was the only black child at our round table. And so one of my white classmates went around and invited everybody at the table to her birthday party except for me. So I'm an inquisitive five-year-old and I recognize (laughs) something that's not quite right about this. And um, while these may not have been my exact words, I just asked her you know I said I noticed you invited everybody except for me why did you do that and um and she replied well you can't come to my birthday party because my dad said black people are not allowed in our home so yeah very direct answer very direct I didn't really Mm -hmm. understand what that meant Mm -hmm. because that that was new for me I didn't understand 
I remember going home and talking to my telling my mom about it and 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 I'm imagining she was shocked because we were in a car riding and she was in the passenger seat and my dad was driving my brother and sister on either side of me and I was in the middle and I just remember her head turning to look at him and um and she just kind of said well you know Rhonda we don't invite ourselves to other people's birthday parties and so that was kind of her her answer at that time and then it happened again when I turned seven so at seven I'm in Girl Scouts and it just so happens that year I'm the only black child in Girl Scouts mm. and so we were out trying to um, earn a badge doing community service you might have been involved with Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts um, and all of the girls were in a huddle and they were talking and when I walked up on them they stopped talking and so what does that mean? <laughs> you know, right. when you walk up on a group of people and they stop talking, they're probably talking about you. <laughs> and so I went to my best friend in the group and I just pulled her to the side and, you know, said something to the extent of, you know, I noticed you all stopped talking when I walked up. Like, why did you do that? And she just looked at me and somewhat um, sadly looked at me and just said, Rhonda, please don't be mad at me. I'm having a birthday party later today. And my dad said that you can't come because you're black. Okay. And so, yeah. And uh, that time I went home and talked to my mom and shared that story with her. And her her response that time was a little bit different. Like she talked to me um, about slavery. She talked with me about um, white people hating black people because of the color of our skin, which mm-hmm. is a, much deeper than that, right? Right. right. Um, and she talked to me about Lincoln freeing the slaves. Right. Which I tell when I tell people that story, you know, as an adult, we understand that relationship was way more complex right. <laughs> than right. what. Uh, my mom shared, but again, I was seven, and um, those are just the early moments, and um, that really, I tell people I've been awakening since five, Right. and, and those are kind of some of those early moments that, that brought that awareness for me. So I, I think it's so interesting, you know, we're both parents, we have kids about the same age, and just those moments where you don't know what to do as a parent, I right. think come like frequently, and I think our <laughs> parents were around this issue in particular, we're just really, just didn't have as many tools and resources and we're less equipped than we are, right? right? So I just think about like how, like it probably took a longer time than it needed to in some ways for you to figure out and put connect the dots and put pieces together. Mm-hmm. But yeah, how did you make sense of that world that you were living in growing up? And, and how is the experience of being in a small town where you experienced like direct racism as mm-hmm. opposed to like all the indirect stuff? Is that an asset or has that helped you kind of develop your analysis around these issues? Somewhat of a double-edged sword, right? Because... <laughs> I mean, it's almost sad to say that these racist events helped me, mm. right? You yeah. know, that kind of sits with you in a hard way. But at the same time, they did. Like, I'm way more attentive to my surroundings. I can walk in a space and immediately tell if I was the only black person there. And to right. this day, it's subconsciously it happens, right? Mm. But this, just the attentiveness to what people are saying and what they're doing, like, I'm paying attention. I'm paying attention to spaces. I'm paying attention to who's here and who's not here. I'm paying attention to what people are saying. What are their intentions behind what they're saying? And sometimes I'm able to analyze situations from a racialized lens that other people can't. Or you have to work with them and point it out to them because they didn't see it before. So it's somewhat this sixth sense, I don't know, uh, Mm. kind of perspective. But I use that in a way to make visible whiteness and racism. So in a sense, it shaped my understanding. And I mean, there's some people now as adults who are just now paying attention. I've had so many experiences that now I'm like... I recognize everything and I can show up in all of the ways and I don't perpetuate harm. Like I'm not, I don't think you ever get to that space, but mm-hmm. 
just way more thoughtful, I feel like, and thinking about how I've included others or if I'm excluding someone and making sure I make amends when I recognize that I might have caused harm to somebody. So I definitely feel like those experiences helped me throughout growing up in that rural town. I'm really interested in your dissertation, the um, study that that was based around. Can you tell us more about that? So with my dissertation, I did a critical analysis analysis study of um, white children participating in an anti-racism summer camp. And I paid attention to, you know, looking at how children in this particular setting embodied whiteness or embodied their racial identity. What did it look like? And it was more of this like exploratory piece and um, where I just wanted to see what was there. What were they thinking about? What did interactions look like with each other and with kids of color? And had um, some interesting findings. What was your foundation? What was your jump off in terms of scope of knowledge to determine like that's where you wanted to take your dissertation? Yeah, so I grounded my dissertation in critical race theory. Mm -hmm. And so critical race theory stems from critical legal studies. Mm -hmm. And Derek Bell is like the father of critical race theory. And so um, some scholars were being critical of critical legal studies and how it didn't include like the intersection of race and racism as part of being uh, structural in our history. The laws that implemented and cemented racism into our whole existence as a country. Mm -hmm. And so um, that framework that racism is ever present is systemic and endemic. Like it's always going to be here. And that's kind of what the, the framework was. And out of that, I pulled, pulled in a critical whiteness studies. And so with critical whiteness studies, it basically talks about how you have to focus on whiteness as you're analyzing racism. But part of CRT is that you decenter whiteness because it's been at the center, right? And you mm -hmm. bring ideas from marginalized communities, count as knowledge, you move from the margin to the center. And so part of the complicatedness of studying whiteness is that you make it center. But I, I center it in a sense that how can we better understand whiteness in a way that benefits people of color? And so looking particularly at young white children, because you don't wake up one day and you're white, you don't wake up one day embodying racism, like there's a process of becoming and that's part of what Toni Morrison talks about and um, Tandika talks about other scholars who, who study whiteness. And it's like, is this process of becoming? And that starts early on. Mm -hmm. And so we as researchers and then even we as community, as people, don't think about how are white children becoming white? Mm -hmm. And when are they able to like name that? Mm -hmm. And how are they embodying behaviors that we know are typical of adults? because most of the studies of whiteness are adult-centric, mm -hmm. right? But we don't necessarily, we can't necessarily apply these same themes that come out of whiteness from adults to children. And so I just mm -hmm. wanted to look and see from that framework what's there. Because I think the interesting challenge is that whiteness is at the center of American society and mm -hmm. white supremacy is the foundation of America, right? That's what, right. from the Constitution, every document we have enforces that because that's what the whole country is built around is white right. supremacy. But it's also invisible mm -hmm. in this weird way. Mm -hmm. And so there's this paradox of we either make the choice to ignore or not focus on whiteness, right, and mm -hmm. think about folks at the margins or, or blackness or whatever. And a lot of what we do is that. Um, or like the work you're doing is kind of making visible this thing that is like pervasive and right. everywhere, but it's so pervasive it's invisible. It's like air, right? right. Like you don't see it. Mm -hmm. And in doing some of the research, Janet Helms is one of the scholars who, who looks at racial identity as a um, black woman. And she says that thinking about white children's racial identity, that's really not even a thing. When you think about racial identity, most of the time people are thinking about 
people of color, particularly black youth, black children, black adults, and how we respond to racism and our coping mechanisms and how we support each other and how we've had to, you know, like build up ourselves. But to think that white children need racial identity work is like rarely even a concept that people even think about. So, so going back to that making the uh, invisible visible piece. I have my own little strategies for making whiteness visible. This is like a dumb one, but like I call businesses white owned like a lot. Like, mm-hmm. so I'll say like, instead of like, people say it's a locally owned, whatever. And I'll be like, it's a white owned, you know, pizza shop or deli or whatever. Because people like, when you say local, you assume local and white. Cause you would say black if it was right. black owned. Right. Exactly. Um, so like there's always ways that it's invisible. Right. And even with like, you know, HBCUs, historically black um, colleges and universities, and if we're honest with ourselves, like white universities are called PWIs, predominantly white yep. institutions, but they should be historically white yeah, <laughs> institutions. They were all white at one point. Simil- right, yeah. it's the same thing. And <laughs> yeah. it invisibilizes that. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And you just think that this is normal and it's not. Yeah. You all say invisible and I say default. If you're going back to Tony, you know, everybody that's not white are the hyphenated people. Like we have to have this caveat to put in front of our identity as an identifier. How I understand why white people don't understand their whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it has a lot to do with that default and also this idea behind group identity mm-hmm. and just the way that our country's been set up on patriarchy and capitalism, especially capitalism. Capitalism focuses on the individual and like how an individual can like be successful in our society and that individualism does not afford a group mentality until it's about who you are not who you don't want to be that's the only time something is grouped in terms of capitalism you don't want to be the people who are not working who are not working hard enough to get out of the situation that they're in i I, I always want to unpack that a little bit more because i think what you're saying is something like really interesting right about how like these systems intersect, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then there's a reason why whiteness is invisible is because the rhetoric of capitalism or the rhetoric of being American or whatever label you want to put on it is really disconnected from the reality, right? right. And so like there's like this all Americans, we're all Americans, whatever, which is really saying white, like you should put white in front of that when you say American because mm-hmm. it's, it's really defined around whiteness. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's like this counter narrative that's really about you know, the American dream and like the individual's ability to be successful and all these sorts of things that are, we know are not actually factual in terms of people's experience. Right. And that's that meritocracy, right? It's like, I pull myself up by my bootstraps. Well, where did you get those bootstraps? Who paid for it? Like there's, (laughs) there's all of these things happening that we know are not meritocratic. Is that the right way to say that? Meritocratic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think so. It's a word now. (laughs) (laughs) We we put it in the ether. There we go. Yeah. So how much when you're thinking about like the work that y'all doing with with young white kids to tackle the issue of race, which is where you're focused, how much do you have to actually shatter their entire worldview? Or like, Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering about how like how much you're tackling some of these other, you know, viewpoints about fairness and justice and freedom and democracy and things like that that are like really tied to ideas about whiteness in America. So we, we do things that are age appropriate. So it's not just me who helps to, to do this work. We have a team of people who come together and plan if we're going to talk about the children like the summer camps. So we do summer camps for kids. We have one camp for kids in rising first through second and then one camp for kids in third through fifth grade. And these are five-day camps that occur in the summer. And so we come together with educators who have experience in working with that age group so that we always make sure that cognitively we are where the kids are supposed to be. And even sometimes we can go above and we have to, ch- I have to check that because my experiences with high school kids 
But we have also, like I call our resident child psychologist, Dr. Cherish Williams, who helps us to think about like where kids are at social and emotional levels, right? And how they're able to process some of this stuff. And so what we, what we do is use a literacy-based curriculum. And so we use books that are at the children's uh, level. And so we use those to foster these conversations. And so even in our camps, we do target white audiences and white spaces because they're least likely to have those conversations. But the majority of our camp participants are black kids um, and children of color, like they represent our majority. So it's like we're doing multiple things at one time to help break down some of those ideas of superiority, right? So there's one, there's the content the, the visible curriculum and that we're reading these books that center black and brown people that talk about race that talk about skin color activism and then we're doing activities around it that are age appropriate so we kind of ease them into it so we start with like on day one we're doing work with identity in the individual like who are you you know where does your name come from and talking about the importance of names and even within that day we're still teaching lessons where we talk about the importance of pronouncing people's names correctly because that is one tool of white supremacy to rename people or to call them something else i want to just call you can to I just tell call you them shelly shelly is so much easier <laughs> to <say>. um, <laughs> right or um to tell you your name is hard to pronounce or that put some type of negative stigma on you and your family because of the name that you have and so we do an activity where uh, we read this one book is called my name is sungo this is a um, refugee child from the sudan who comes to America and has these experiences where everybody is mispronouncing his name, calling him things, calling him nicknames, making fun of his name, and he's like really hurt by it. Mm -hmm. And so he comes to school one day with us, his grandfather who was back in Sudan who couldn't leave. His grandfather says, you, be, you're pr you should be proud of your name. This is connected to our people, your heritage. And so one day he just gets fed up and he comes to school with a t-shirt on that phonetically teaches the people how to say his name. So he draws a son and he draws a goal. And he's mm -hmm. like, my name is Son Goal. And then the students learn how to say it correctly, and the other children in the book, then they make uh, designs for their names and to teach each other. And so we do that with the children. And then we talk to them about the importance of holding people accountable for saying your name. And then we do a role play with them so they get in partners. So someone mispronounces your name, and you tell them, no, my name is Rhonda, and that's what you should call me. Another thing that we prepare students to deal with is when someone says, your name is hard to pronounce, I'm going to call you. And we taught them to say, actually, my name isn't hard to pronounce. It's hard for you to pronounce, and I will help you say it correctly. And so in those ways, we're teaching children to shift that deficit. Whose fault is it that you can't pronounce someone else's name? It's not their fault. It's not their family's fault. There's nothing wrong with them. This past summer, we realized that we wrote the curriculum from the victim standpoint. And so when they, you know, they came up with these ways to respond when something has happened to you. And then we added a piece where if you're the person, if you're the perpetrator of the harm, well, you have to apologize. I'm sorry. Thank you for helping me say it correctly. Um, and just teaching the kids, like, sometimes you might be the one doing it. You need to own <laughs> that you messed up, reconcile, and do better. We just have activities that we build up. Too, so we don't jump right in like, wait, racism, white supremacy. You know, we do teach terminology. We do talk about racism. We say those words. We say white supremacy with a third through fifth grade and teach that as a terminology for them. By day three, we're into racism specifically. Mm -hmm. You have to be very concrete with this age group. Someone actually was mistreated because of the color of their skin. That's kind of how we approach it. 
it sounds like your target audience, even though the majority of your students at camp are mm-hmm. black and brown kids, it's your target audience are white kids. How are you helping them unpack their whiteness and how it's a tangible thing? If that's part of, you know, the process during camp. It is. So by day three, we're, again, we talk about racism specifically. Day four of our camp, we're into systems. And so on both of those days, we caucus. And by caucusing, I mean the children of color are in one room and the children who identify as white are in a separate room with a white facilitator. But um, we caucus and the white students go in their space and then they talk about white privilege. They talk about what does that even mean? And they can name where they've seen that happen. And, you know, we're working with a select group of kids, too, so we have to own that parents have chosen to send their kids here. So they're not representative of the general population. Mm -hmm. But yet and still, there's biases that have already formed in children, even if your parents are actively trying to teach you anti-racist thoughts and help you develop a a healthy racial identity. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of one of the ways where they get to sit with people who look like them and process, like, well, what does this mean? What does this look like? Mm -hmm. How are they thinking when they see children being mistreated in their classrooms? Some of them can recognize... I do this and I don't get in trouble, but when my black friend does is they're getting in trouble. The students can name that for themselves. Some of them can't. Like, I don't want to lump them all together. Like, it's a diverse group, right? They're not a monolith, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we're always advocating as people of color. Like, we're not a monolith. Mm -hmm. So there's a range of knowledge um, that some of the kids are coming to. So some of them are more experienced in this type of language, and they can lead the discussion and facilitators can fall back. And some of them, like, this is brand new. They never had a conversation about race before. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's one of the ways that we do it. We separate and caucus, and then it also creates a safe space for the kids of color to share their experiences. Mm -hmm. Like, this is what happened to me. (laughs) This is what I witnessed. This is how my mom had to do this, and my dad had to show up for me in these ways. Mm -hmm. And it's just sad. Like, I mean, in the first through second grade group, their stories. They're carrying these stories, and some of them didn't have the language to n- explain what's happening, and some of them do. And so that's that's really a time where we try to heal and hear each other and let them know, like, you're at this camp because you're learning ways to be an activist. By day five, we're in activism. This is how we show up. This is how we do our protests. This is how you, these are the people that you can write. Here's a book where children just like you all, the streets are free, who came together and fought for what they believed in. So it's a lot, and it's heavy. It's heavy. Like, we tell parents it's not a kumbaya camp, mm-hmm. that your children might cry, and it's okay. For one, that means their humanity is still intact. Mm-hmm. It's okay, but we have to heal and take care of the children and hear them out and listen as they're processing this and making sense of this world at a young age. And, you know, a lot of people say kids don't, they don't see color, they don't see race. I'm like, no, that's not true. Mm-hmm. That's not true. I want to talk more about, we're using terms, I want to make sure folks know what we mean by them and how we understand them. So how do you understand what whiteness is and how that manifests? Let's see. um, I understand whiteness as the thoughts, the laws, the behaviors that go into putting white, people who identify as white as superior and people who identify as um, those of us who are of color um, in an inferior and a subordinate position. So all of the things that happen to create that that hierarchy um, contribute to whiteness. 
and um, one one scholar Cheryl Harris talked about whiteness as property and so whiteness as property basically means that to be white just exist in a white body you own you can use it like um, you own something so it gives you access to spaces so in Jim Crow you had access to white only spaces during slavery you had the ability to own other people because you are white and it gives you access to happiness access to determine what is knowledge just by having that skin color um, because that is denied to people of color access to certain but even to this day it still functions as that it's, it also functions as an inheritance mm. you get to inherit things so it's like this object that people have and that's really how working-class whites came to separate themselves from working-class blacks and black people who were enslaved because they were given access to this property so because you're white now you're able to own land mm -hmm. you know now you're able to vote because you're white and you're a landowner so you're given access to these things and so if you're working-class white you may not have anything else but you have your whiteness and that makes you better than the black person mm -hmm. And so rather than coalesce and join with black people, you want to keep what you have and you keep it separate so that you can remain above them. And so that was one of the ways the division was created. Was that back in 1700s at the Bacon's Rebellion or something like that? Mm -hmm. um, but that's how whiteness functions. I think one of the interesting challenges now for like whiteness is, I mean, part of what's baked into that is like moral superiority, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that was really tied to like Christian notions that white folks have inherited the earth because of their goodness. And so I think a lot of activist movements have played upon that. Mm -hmm. So so the civil rights movement, for instance, the idea was that we're challenging your goodness. Like we're going to show you, hold up a mirror mm -hmm. and show you this is not good and you are not good. And so whiteness has had to evolve and morph and cede some of its property in order to feel good. Eduardo Benitez Silva talks about racism without racists. Mm -hmm. This whiteness that you still have most of or, or a lot of the property that whiteness provides you. You're giving up a little bit of that in order to live in a world where you can say you're colorblind. Or, and or, I would call that liberalism, personally. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's yeah. what that But even conservatives say. now, like, there's not, I mean, there are, there are folks on the extreme, but, like, the mainstream conservatives, like the Brookings Institution type folks, the, the Heritage Foundation type folks, are saying, no, we don't believe in bigotry. Like, what we believe in is values and... and Hard and, work and yeah. coded language. Right, yeah. yeah, and Christian values, right, and, mm -hmm. and those sorts of things that are that are all coded. So there's, like, this... So yeah. I just want to insert, yeah. like, Frederick Douglass taught us, like, the slave masters who were Christian in the church were some of the worst. Yeah. The Christians were the worst. He talks about as far as masters and stuff. So it's just so interesting to be like, we're, we're religious and... You know, but the history show that it was the religious people who were enacting some of the most harmful violence against um, people who were enslaved. Yeah, I mean, there's some benefit to that. Like, I think about folks in my family who didn't experience explicit racism the way that I did. So I had experiences mm -hmm. like the ones you described. Like, I had, we moved to a white neighborhood. I went from a kind of multiracial, multicultural neighborhood to a white neighborhood. People drove by the house and called us nigger, like... Mm kids chased me home with dirt clot, like threw dirt at me on the way home from school. And like, so I had these like experiences and they were really negative. Like I actually fell into like, probably was like mild depression or whatever mm -hmm. and gained a bunch of weight. And that's like, all this kind of crazy stuff that happened to me like in middle school. But the benefit of that is that I was never in the dark about the fact that there was a racial system operating. I didn't understand it mm -hmm. like the same way where you were five or seven, you had those experiences, but I knew that it was there. And there's this way that I think 
for even for young black kids, racism has become increasingly invisible. And I think yeah. probably less now that the current moment with Trayvon and like and post that where people are talking about race more. What do you encounter from folks that are kind of like racism deniers or who feel like this is not where we should be focusing our energy or attention? So many thoughts. One, I'm gonna I'm think about students. So thinking about the invisibility of it. So I taught previously at a, at a historically um, black school, and it's predominantly black and brown children at this school. And um, as an educator, I'm always <laughs> you're always gonna have some type of uh, lesson related to race, gender, and power. And for some students, and again, they're not a monolith either, but for some students, it was very hard for them to understand my lessons about racism because they were never around white people. They're predominantly around all black and brown folks in their neighborhood, in their school, which creates this false reality for them. And the people who harmed them looked like them. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, nah, Miss Bullock, you know, <laughs> that's not, I don't know about that racism stuff, but what happens to me, not even recognizing that we're sitting in a school that's very uh, racially segregated in a city that is not, they believe that Durham is like 90% black. It's not. And they don't understand that there's a invis- the invisibility of racism that happened, why this is a, a segregated school, even to recognize that this, you know, is a segregated school, or living in poverty and in these, in these neighborhoods that are under-resourced and these communities that are food deserts, they see the person stealing and they're judging and buying into these negative stereotypes because their homes are being broken into. And people are, are stressed out and overworked and underpaid and mamas are angry and daddies are angry and daddies being arrested and it as if like internalizing self-hatred which is so sad you know racism is happening as a system and it's created these spaces that make your mom have to work five jobs and um, you know that's that's so much more abstract for them because that's, that's not what they visibly see I, I feel you on like this bubble tip because I went to pretty much an all white private high school. I mm-hmm. was like one to five black kids and some of those black kids were grappling with blackness as you do at a predominantly white space. But what I witnessed at that school was that it was so isolated. If it wasn't happening to you, then it didn't exist. Right. Like it's if I didn't experience it, so how can that be a real thing? Mm-hmm. Like people literally have those thoughts because it's not in their immediate vicinity and something that they can witness or, you know, it's it's definitely not a racism is, is not a is low key a faith thing because you just have to believe it because somebody told you it exists. But but if you don't experience it, right. if you don't see those um disparities and those discrepancies if it's not your day-to-day reality Mm -hmm. then it can't be real it's not real if it's not in my purview then it must not be real Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and so and that's what that's what we see as adults and now but then now take zoom out a little bit and look at adults passing laws Mm -hmm. about experiences that they've never had Mm -hmm. so they must not be real so when i pass this law that's causing harm it's invisible to me or I don't have to think about race, or I don't have to think about women, and I don't have to think about marginalized communities because I didn't come from one. Mm-hmm. And so that whole reality, other people's reality, I don't have to contend with. And that's how we're getting the continuation of laws that are perpetuating harm. Because those laws didn't stop way back when, though they're still happening right now. And so when I see adults who are in denial from all racial backgrounds, Sometimes you can walk. Sometimes I just take a break and walk away. It's too much. <laughs> I don't know. What are you? Um, listen. How can you? If you're paying attention, how can you not 
see what's happening right in front of you. That's some deep delusion. Yeah. To not be able to see all this stuff that's around you, or some um, sincere isolation. Sincere right. isolation and the idea behind cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it comes from. There's a lack of understanding, even though you have like all the facts. You, there's still a disconnect that folks can't. Um, that they're you, not able. There's still a disconnect that people are not able to connect. Right. And you have to believe, like you, to, to wake up and and go to school in the morning or go to work or whatever. You have to believe in that there's some kind of fairness and there's some kind of mm-hmm. whatever. And so that like that Amer- called the American dream, or whatever. Like that delusion is really powerful and important and core to people's identity. When you encounter racism and you think about it long enough, it makes you sad, right? Yeah. And it makes you, it can make you depressed and it can make you demotivated, right? And so I think there is like this real self-protective thing that folks are doing. It is. Yeah. Self-preservation. And and this reminds me of a, a meme I saw on Facebook where it was thinking about gentrification. White people will move into black neighborhoods and replace them with Black Lives Matter signs. Mm-hmm. But really... Seriously? Do you, right. do you know how you got here? Mm-hmm. Whose life didn't matter? Mm-hmm. Whose life who you didn't di- matter? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Displace. Yeah, who did you displace? Mm-hmm. And and now we have a sign and now you're like, come on. Yeah, okay. and the reason why you could afford that big house is because it was the value it was depreciated because it was associated with blackness. Right. right. Like that house mm-hmm. was a black house, right? And that was why it's cheaper. Yeah. And now you're now you're flipping it and your very whiteness adds value to that property. Right. I saw a similar post that was saying how gentrified neighborhoods aren't cleaner because white people live there but because the city values them based on the people Mm -hmm. that live there and they're taking care of the space hoods aren't dirty because black people are there it's because who like what's the value placed on the people that live there yeah i want to ask ron i want to ask a couple like really practical questions what are some things they can do to develop a positive sort of racial consciousness for their kids be comfortable with talking about race with your children, for one. And one easy way in what we teach um, when I do presentations to parents is the power of books. Books are conditioning children to believe things about themselves. So for one, I would check the books that you're using in your home and make sure that characters of color are centered. Choose books that are written by characters of color because they are less likely to portray these stereotypical images because oftentimes like white women produce a lot of children's books about black kids. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. There's some strong books. We use some books by white women in our camp. They're like really good and they're very specific and concrete. But you have to check for how we're portrayed in those books. And choose books where they are centered and they're doing all of the things. Not just playing sports and not all just about black history, riding a bike, experiences with math and science, because we know that in education and in schools, black and brown kids are conditioned to stray away from math and science, Yeah, they're right? funneled into sports. They're funneled. And, mm-hmm. and so oftentimes they're set up, they're behind before they even get to high school, they can't even take some of the required courses to do some of these things. So using books as an entry point, using current events, I'm not saying graphic images, but talk to them about it. Why did this happen? But centering it in something, I do not recommend just coming up out of the blue. So let me tell you about this thing called racism. I do recommend contextualizing it, especially I'm thinking about younger kids. Mm-hmm. Elementary school on down, like pre-K five. And just using those books, and you can find them. I have a recommended book list that we use. And talk about like what happened in the text. Like my son now, so we were reading a book, I think it's called May Goes to Space or something like that, but it's based on a true story. So it's a, um, a young black girl who's in school, and she wants to be an astronaut. 
Oh, that's Mae Jemison. Yes, 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 okay. yes, yes. She wants to be an astronaut. And so she's so excited about being an astronaut. And she goes to school, and her teacher says, really? And the kids laugh when she says, I want to be an astronaut. The kids laugh, and the teacher tells her, you should be a nurse. And my son, we, we talked about that, right? Like, we he, we were looking at, well, you know, did she want to be a nurse? No, she didn't want to be a nurse. And my son goes, and you know what, Mom? The teacher was white. And I said, and you're right, Zion. And I said, and sometimes... When we go back to talking about stereotypes, we go back to talking about racism, and I said that would happen a lot to black and brown kids. They were being told by white teachers that they can't do this and they can't do that. But you know, you can do that. And I didn't even name that. Like he named it. And I just want to caution that I'm not teaching my children that all white people are going to cause these harms, all white people are bad. But he does need to recognize that that's something that's real. And I was so proud of him in that moment. He was able to recognize that was racism happening to this little child. Mm -hmm. And I was like, whatever you want to be, you can be it too, just like me. And there's some books that are very explicit, like someone was explicitly mistreated, and they'll name race and skin color, and then have that conversation with the kids. Like, you don't have to have all the answers. None of us do. But using those books is concrete. Um, it's not abstract, because racism can be abstract sometimes for little kids. But having that very concrete entry point, and then have follow-up conversations about it. So, yeah. I'm not a parent, but I feel like parents worry about, quote unquote, protecting their child's innocence. And so that's why they avoid hard mm -hmm. conversations like mm -hmm. this, whether it be about race, whether it be about sex, whether it be about gender, gender identity, mm -hmm. all of those things for the sake of protecting. But I guess I would push back and be like, what is the risk of not having those conversations? Right. And from research, it shows that at three months, infants can recognize a difference in skin color, and they track it with eyes. Um, by six months old, children show a preference for their own skin color. Mm -hmm. So the, you, everybody is like, you're pro whatever yourself. So our babies are born pro-black, right? <laughs> by kindergarten, that pro-in-group um, preference decreases it decreases in black and brown children for their pro self. They become pro white. Mm -hmm. um, for white children, it increases for right. themselves. Mm -hmm. And so the uh, research talks about how at that point by kindergarten they've been exposed to all this media, costumes, other books, people. When you go to the dentist, what do the dentists look like? And all of these things are conditioning kids to have these beliefs. And kids are so smart. We're born geniuses, and then things happen to us. Mm. But the kids are synthesizing. Mm -hmm. quick example about a child synthesizing so I, I share this with people to let them know like kids are making sense of race so this is a Latinx teacher she's a first grade teacher at the time and she shared a story where she had a young black girl in her first grade class who was drawing a princess and this Latina teacher she's woke right so she's like she wanted to affirm that black little black girl's identity while she's drawing that princess and she goes up to her and she says is your princess gonna be brown because at that age, they don't really say black, but they say brown because our skin color is actually brown. So she's like, is your princess gonna be brown? And uh, one of her white male classmates, a little white boy said, her princess can't yeah. be brown because princesses are white. Yeah. I imagine no one explicitly taught him that. He synthesized it based off of what he had seen either from Disney or books or costumes, uh, movies. He synthesized that princesses are white. And so at that young age, they are making sense of the things that are around them. And if we don't make a concerted effort to reteach and to unteach some of these beliefs that they're being conditioned to hold, things are not going to get any better.
I guess the first question I have selfishly is I have like a very strict policy on not talking about race with white people or very, very being smart about the situations in which I'll do it. You are somebody who's like taken on as part of your life work, talking mm-hmm. about race with white people, which I admire and I appreciate. And so how do you engage with folks that to kind of like raise the racial consciousness of the folks that are actually part of the oppressive system? Right. Oh, my gosh. That's whew, that's a lot. Um, and so part of the reasons why I engaged in doing the work with adults, when I had so many things happening right now in my head, um, <laughs> because I was an educator. I still am an educator. I always be an educator. And so I taught in spaces like education. Let's say locally, our teachers are 60% white. And so as a teacher in a predominantly black and brown school with a significant um, population of white teachers, and you're witnessing harm in activist world, we talk about white people need to educate themselves. Mm -hmm. And they do. Mm -hmm. Comma. And... Sometimes when we're in those, we as in people of color in those spaces, like we have to like tell them about themselves. Yeah, well-meaning whites are kind of the worst because well-meaning whites, again, it's it's the well-meaning and then you get lost between intent and exactly. One of the reasons why, and and I almost had to be convinced because when I started planning and thinking about we are, I just wanted to work with children because I had almost... And I teeter between here almost every weekly, giving up on white adults. Oh, that's fine. <laughs> that, right? That's a that's a valid. But you feeling did it though, right and I think that's important. But I didn't. <laughs> yeah. But I didn't. Right? Yeah. It's a daily to, struggle. Right. It is a daily yeah. struggle, mm-hmm. right? Um, because you see people who can verb that well intent who can verbalize it, but then you see the behaviors, mm-hmm. and you recognize this is deep. Mm-hmm. Like your walls are high and wide. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of work to even try to have a conversation with you when I know I'm working against all of that. But at the same time, if you're thinking about like systemic change, like you have to be a part of it. Like you can't you can't exclude adults. They have to be a part of white adults have to be a part of it. So part of one of the ways that I cope with that or I approach this work is that <laughs> if there was like a scale, I don't work with people who I have to convince that racism is real. We're wasting time. Right. I'm working with people who are committed for the most part to doing this work or their school leader is committed to do this work. So you maybe you showed up because your school leader made you. But I set a tone in the space where this is what we're about to talk about. So and we're going. And so every every time I do a, a presentation, some people will say, well, what are you going to do about those people who really need to hear this? Right. Because we're educators and we're here. I'm like the people who really need to hear this are in this room. Right. We can't ever believe that we're good. Progressive liberals actually are causing the most harm because those other people on the fringes. It's a this group right here in the middle is very large. We might need to repeat that one. <laughs> <laughs> that was right, weird. and I'm like, your that's your job. After you leave here from this training and we've had this conversation, those are your people that you need to go out and reach. Like I'm not gonna go beat my head against the wall for that. Like no, and that doesn't mean that working with that liberal white person is easy and it's an end, and we don't have like reluctant learners. But that's different from people who are on the fringes. And that's not my work mm-hmm. out there. I don't, I don't go there. That's the, when they leave from our sessions and sit with and grapple with, that's their job to go out to those communities. And when I'm in individual spaces, if I get the sense that, you know, someone is over-talking, they're not reflective, someone as, a, as in a white person who wants to do work with me, and, and if it's work to work with you, then I pull back. I'm like, you know, life is short. 
And at that moment, I'm like, this isn't my role. This is somebody else's role to work with you through all, it's too much happening. Like you need to already be on a forward on the spectrum because it's just, it's just too much. And, and then at that point, you're causing more harm to me being in this situation. Like I'm not benefiting from it. And so I have to say, I'm going to walk away and I have to, you know, I have to decide, is this helping me or is it not? And is it going to help my people? Is it not? And then to make self-care decisions and just say, nah, I think I'm a, I, you know what? Here's somebody else. Watch the recce to this first. And you have to do yeah. that because it is, it, yeah, self-preservation is real. And, you know, I had to come to this conclusion that, like, I cannot stop these racist interactions that I'm having on a day-to-day basis. Um, I can't stop them. What, so I was like, Rhonda, what is within your control? how I respond to it and how it impacts me because that no matter how smart or how how high I get and what I learn that doesn't mean people are going to white people are going to stop being racist right on these individual basis and so I approach it as when I say something to you whether I'm educating or advocating or being angry I'm doing it not to teach you but to save myself mm-hmm. so when I walk away from here I made this visible to you so that that headache, that sometimes that tension headache that you get when you wish you had said something and you didn't and now you can't, that white person has to carry that burden too now. Mm-hmm. You don't get to cause harm to me and walk away unscathed and but, not know that you caused harm. I'm going to make that visible to you as long as, am I? do I feel good saying something right now? Am I going to be happy when this is done? Okay, then I'm going to speak up. Now more, more times than ever, I am going to speak up and make that visible to you, and you're going to have to sit with it. And then at least when you encounter me or another black person, maybe you'll slow down and think a little bit before you say that ignorant thing that you just said to me. Again, this is a Black Future Manifesto, but um, there are going to be some non-black people mm-hmm. listening to this. Um, and welcome, some, as I always say, welcome. W- welcome, <laughs> welcome, and do better. Um, so yes, <laughs> speaking of doing better, if a white person heard this and realized that, that oh crap, I might be doing some of these harmful things, they're analyzing, they're going back and thinking about how they reacted in the classroom mm-hmm. if they're educators. What is your baseline you feel that white people need to have to be committed to, to being anti-racist? Yeah, baseline for me is to own your whiteness, to know that you are white, to know the history of the privileges afforded to you because of the color of your skin and also to know the legacy of violence your people perpetuated on communities. Why is that important for them to know that though? They just say, it's not me, I didn't do that. It doesn't matter because every day white people do things to reify whiteness, whether they were part of slavery, Jim Crow, their parents came over as Irish people. Like a lot of people say, well, my family was Irish, they didn't own slaves. Yeah. Like it doesn't matter. Sororities. It doesn't it does not yeah. matter. Sure. It doesn't matter. If you just got here today, mm. <laughs> you benefit from whiteness. And so every day there are things that white people do to reify whiteness, to reify white supremacy, whether it's through voting, housing who you hire, the barriers and access to getting a job, the barriers and access um, to get an education, who you decide to promote, these minuscule ways that have a systemic impact and the ways that just existing here in this space, you're reifying whiteness. And so baseline, you have to own that. You have to know because now it helps you to make sense of reality, not the narratives that have been passed down. Now you understand these counter narratives and that they make a commitment to using their power and privilege 
recognizing where they hone that power and privilege locally and think about how can I use my power and privilege in this local context? I'm not asking you to change the whole world. At your job, in your HOA, right? At the grocery store, when you vote to disrupt systems of white supremacy. That is baseline, and then you need to grow from there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's where uh, that's where the baseline should be. Like, I, I recognize I'm white, I was born white, and inherited these privileges, I inherited a legacy of racialized violence, and this is what I'm doing to use my power and privilege to disrupt these systems of white supremacy. So, Yeah, I, I think that's a good point to try and wrap up on, because, again, Rhonda, you are here with an organization that focuses on decolonizing the minds of white people. And this is the Black Future Manifesto. We're trying to get (laughs) black folks free. Some people might not understand why we have you on this show. So I guess, you know, they've been listening. How is telling white people about themselves going to get us to liberation? That's a good question. And and I I still grapple with that. Like, like all the time. But one of the things that I've tried to come to terms with is that we will always be healing ourselves if we don't address the harm or the person causing the harm. Mm. And that doesn't mean it's our job to go out and fix white people. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. Right. But when I realized that in preparing our sons, they're carrying a weight to have this knowledge of what to, to prepare you for what you might experience. I'm armoring my children. That armor is heavy. And I started to grapple with my child is being weighed down. And not that I'm trying to cause harm to white children, right? But mm-hmm. the freedom of not knowing mm-hmm. and the freedom in causing harm to people and not having to sit with it, not having to own it, not having to even know that you've done it. What happens when you disarm the people who are causing the harm? What, what does that look like? Working with young children earlier on, which historically there has not been a systemic effort to help white children develop healthy racial identities. You know where the systemic effort when it comes to racial identity development in white communities happens? Through KKK. Hmm. There's, a, there's a systemic curriculum that they use to raise children, to be racist, right? That's the curriculum that's there. That's the idea. That's the ideology. That's the education. To be high-achieving racist. They're yes. all racist, right? <laughs> right We're right, all right, racist, right. racist, right? right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> high, high-achieving. High but, like, yeah, the racist are the racist. What yeah. does that look like? Yeah. And, and I am in no way saying that that is the answer mm-hmm. and it's going to solve all of the problems, right? Mm-hmm. But I do feel, based off of my experiences, that I was led to do this work as a critical whiteness scholar, thinking about how could this work as a community, as an organization, make experiences better for our black and brown children who are interacting in these spaces Mm -hmm. with other white children? And what would it look like for white children who were, what would they look like as adults? Had anti-racism training happened for the kids who were in my kindergarten class or were in your community, what would that look like? I mean, in some ways, that's individualism, right? But when you're impacting a school system, when a school system's curriculum shifts, I don't know. I don't know. But we have to find our moments of hope. Mm-hmm. We have to find our moments of hope. And that doesn't mean that we stop working with kids of color and preparing them to have healthy racial identities. There have to be parallel movements. Right. 
it can't just be one or the other. It's both and. The yeah. power of and. And I think that other half has left to go astray. Mm-hmm. No, because I, I feel and you, Rhonda, because I, uh, I, I love you and I appreciate the work you're doing, but I've already told you, that's not my calling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to tell white people about themselves. But I completely and utterly understand how getting black people free um, has to work in tandem with both of yeah. those things. Me as an organizer, I'm always going to be doing things to try and take care of black people Mm -hmm. to make sure they're good, to make sure they're educated, to make sure they're healing or know how to heal themselves. But like you said, who's worrying about the people constantly attacking in the back? Mm -hmm. Right. What what happens if you tell them, put the bat down? And also, now we can't say it's not that simple, right? That's a very simple analogy. Mm -hmm. But if we're always arming people, preparing them for the swing, I feel like we're conditioned to believe that's where we should stay. Mm-hmm. But can we not tell the other person to put the bat down? Let me teach you about the harm you've caused. Let me teach you in ways to think about how you've been given privileges to even have this bat. And you're benefiting from a history of people who all had the bats. And y'all just some bat makers out here. Y'all, y'all, y'all got the bat makers. You're making you're capital down the trees, off of it. Like, deforestation. All of the things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I just want to say, what does that look like? And again, I'm not... There are people who've come before me. There are people of color who've been doing critical whiteness studies. It, it's not that old, though. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if we go back to Du Bois, he was setting us up to right, do critical, right. critical mm-hmm. whiteness studies. Like, mm-hmm. that's, what, that's his thing. Double said so much mm-hmm. about it. And I'm just trying to do my part. This is my lane. Yeah. I'm right beside you. Right. <laughs> we, and we have, we, have to, we have to do better. So I guess, I guess the last question I wanted you to answer, just kind of like what's the, if you think about your children, your children's children, What's the future that you imagine for black people in this country? For my child, what I imagine is uh, for him to be able to focus on um, other issues in the world, solving cure for cancer, how are we making the community better, because he was able to go to college and have access and not be discriminated against as a black male. He's able to do all of the things and never again have to think about, not not think about because our history is important. Like I don't want him to forget that. For that to be like a distant memory. Mm-hmm. Back in the day, one time this happened and not have to also recount a story that happened to him the day before. Right, for it to really be a back in the day thing, which some people think is back in the day, we're post racial, right? Mm-hmm. Um, for that to actually be a reality, and that he can spend his energy and our communities can spend our energy on just like raising children, regular discipline, <laughs> you know, <laughs> homework, right? Not as I'm preparing you to go to school. If a white child says this to you, this is how you respond. If your teacher says this to you, you know you're smart, you know, I don't have to tell my child he's smart because he knows it. Mm-hmm. I don't have to build him up because it's there. There are no more firsts for us. We're the 175th thousandth, right, <laughs> in a space. Like, that's what I imagine, to be in a community with people who look like him and be okay with that, not feel any apprehensions, not have to check himself. That's what I want for our kids, for them to be authors and write about whatever they want to write about and just to exist freely. Yes, and the love freely. That's what that's what I want. Liberation is inevitable.
Thank you for tuning into this latest episode of the Black Future Manifesto. Thank you to Blackspace for giving us a place to record. Blackspace is a digital makerspace based out of Durham and Chapel Hill, North Carolina, that aims to provide black and brown youth with a breathing space to manifest their dreams by any medium necessary. Thank you to Mr. Groupology, the producer of this banging soundtrack in the background. Much love and appreciation for Rhonda Taylor Bullock for coming in and indulging us in conversation. This episode was made possible by the support of Frontline Solutions, a Black-owned consulting firm that helps organizations working on the front lines of change to define their goals, execute plans, and evaluate their impact. If you like this episode, hit that subscribe button and leave us a comment on our SoundCloud page or review on the Apple Podcasts app. For a deeper delve into the topics, people, and organizations mentioned on this episode, head to our website, blackfuturepod.com, and click on the footnotes tab. If you know of any people or organizations we should feature on the show, let us know at info at blackfuturepod.com or tag us on social media using the hashtag HeyBFM, that's H-E-Y-B-F-M. Until next time, I'm your host, Mariah M, signing off.